Welcome to A Story of Us, our humanity, history, and department. This podcast is hosted entirely by the graduate and undergraduate students at The Ohio State University's Anthropology Department through the Anthropology Public Outreach Program, or APOP for short, and in collaboration with the American Anthropological Association. My name is Emma Legan. I am your host for today's bonus episode, and I have with me today our guest, Dr. Filiberto Panados. Welcome, Dr. Panados. Thank you. So Dr. Panados is an academic director for the Center for Engaged Learning Abroad in Belize, and he's here with us today to give us a talk called Imagining and Enacting Indigenous Futures, Diversity and the Challenge of Inclusion. And so I'm very excited to talk to you a little bit more about that. Um, But before we get into Indigenous Futures and diversity, the first thing that I wanted to ask you is a little bit about your background. So can you tell our audience what it is that you do? Okay, as you mentioned, I'm Academic Director at the Center for Engaged Learning Abroad, uh, which means that I'm we involve students from Belize and mostly students from North America in engaged scholarship, you know, service learning, field courses, and so on. My background is really in education studies, but I've worked the last 15 years, I really place myself more in indigenous studies. And so, you know, often it's this very closely related with anthropology. We've talked in our previous episodes about anthropology being the study of mankind and how we look at diversity and we're trying to bring out different voices. Precisely, precisely. Yeah. I mean, uh, a lot of the work that I do, I mean, I think most of the colleagues that I collaborate with tend to be anthropologists or indigenous studies. And indigenous studies is multidisciplinary, so kind of use these different disciplines to try to understand the indigenous world and uh, try to think about indigenous futures. Can you tell us a little bit about the indigenous background in Belize? Okay, so Belize is this tiny little country, so it's 360,000 people more or less. So probably, I don't know how large the Ohio State University is, but it seems to be pretty huge. So probably maybe three times the size, I'm not sure, in terms of population. And within that population, uh, there are three, two indigenous groups, the Garifuna, or the Garinago people, who were people from St. Vincent originally, but they were kicked out from there by the French and the British, and then, well, you know this long story. <laughs> uh, they ended up in Belize, and so they are considered to be one of the indigenous uh, peoples there. And the other, of course, is the Maya people, so it's in Mesoamerica, so obviously it's Mayan territory. And we have three linguistic Maya communities, Yucatec, uh, Kekchi, and Mopan. And the Kekchi and Mopan are in southern Belize, um, which is kind of closer to Honduras and, uh, yeah, closer to, the, closer, closer to Honduras. And that's kind of where I work most. Uh, I'm from up north, and my background is Maya, Yucatec Maya, but I work mostly in, in southern Belize. So, yeah, I mean, so there's very interesting in terms of in, in what's happening in the indigenous world in, in Belize. Like, the Garifuna people just a few years ago, they managed to get their culture, their language and music be declared kind of an intangible heritage of humanity. So it's awesome. a major achievement for, yeah. for them, you know. And then uh, within the Mayan world and the Maya people of Southern Belize have been engaged in the last 30 or 40 years in there's been a lot of like resurgence, uh, struggling for their rights to land. And uh, they secured a uh, 
court ruling that affirms that right. And so they've now been able to focus a lot more on thinking about an indigenous futures, which is really what I'm going to talk about later today. And I'm really excited about what uh, what is happening there. I think it's a very hopeful story. Yeah. So can you tell us a little bit about this story? Well, yeah. So the land rights um, struggle. I mean, my people, of as indigenous people all around the world, have always defended their lands, of course, because it is not just a space, but a place, right? To, a place to be. And uh, so in the 19, mid-1990s, the state of Belize had uh, granted uh, licenses to logging companies to extract timber from what lands of my people considered to be theirs. So they then, you know, they voiced, of course, their dissatisfaction with this. Nothing happened. Eventually, they went to court many, many years lower court and then it was appealed but consistently the courts have uh, sustained that they have the rights to land and so it's been an amazing achievement and it's actually I think the first case that made use of the United Nations Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous Peoples uh, to kind of substantiate their claim and so that's fantastic so it's a case a lot of people kind of look to and it's a small population uh, if you think about it in terms of numbers right um so I'd say the Maya people are 10% of the Belizean population. So that would be, let's say, 35,000. But it's not 35,000. That is Kekchi and Mopan. So I don't have the exact number. <laughs> but it could be like 25,000 people. Right. So kind of to be able to see what they've been able to do, it's just amazing. And it's amazing. Well, they've been able to collaborate, to to establish partnerships with other indigenous peoples, with agencies from the UN and from North America, universities and so on. I think that is what has allowed them to achieve this. So in 2015, they got a court ruling at the Caribbean Court of Justice, which is the court with the the highest uh, court with jurisdiction in Belize. So that's kind of set the grounds. And so now, you know, my people are saying, you know, we went to court not to find out whether we have rights to our land. So we know that we do. So it's about land rights, but it's not about land rights. Mm-hmm. You know, it is about more than that. It is uh, one of the leaders recently. I was at a meeting, and he said something to the effect of, "You know, it's about struggling for life and struggling for our life." Right. Okay. And so, as a result of that, then they've been engaging a person thinking. So, what is the future that we imagine for ourselves? Okay. And that's that's the part that I think. It's particularly uh, interesting and, and hopeful to see how young people, to see how women, to see how elders, leaders imagine this future. And, um, you know, it's nothing new, perhaps, okay, mm-hmm. but it's amazing to hear their voices and to make a space for, for their voices in terms of how they imagine the future. Right. Yeah. So... Um, if you think so, what kind of future do they imagine? Right? So uh, they uh, today at the the talk that I'm doing, I'm kind of be showing some of the uh, work that I've done. So we had a process where we involved you know, these participants in drawing out their notions of the future, right? right? And um, also kind of notions of who they are. So basically, we asked them to engage with two questions: Who are we? And What's our dream from the future for the future? Right. So a process that we call a process of rerouting and rerouting. Right. So, and they do some amazing, amazing drawings, you know, and to that are very powerful in communicating how they think about themselves and also how they think about the future. Right? Yeah. So anyway, that's kind of what's <laughs> what's uh, what's cooking. That's awesome. So, what has your role been in facilitating these conversations? You mentioned a little bit mm-hmm. about it, but could you talk about that a little more? Okay. So, as I said, my background is in education studies. Mm-hmm. So, 
I, you know, I did my doctoral work in like post-colonial critical theory, critical pedagogy. And um, so I was interested in that. How do you educate in a post-colonial context? Or how do you engage in decolonial education? And I have found myself less in the institution and working more with, you know, with communities. So I kind of engage scholarship type work, right? Or public uh, anthropology, yep. I think the term that you, you used. So I collaborate with the, my organizations down south. I'm part, in fact, of their technical uh, advisory. Mm-hmm. So I'm called to do a lot of things. Like to, as they think through a number of things, they will invite me to to be part of that. So sometimes I don't, it might be reading about stuff and trying to summarize that so that they can understand better kind of the context, uh, help to think through you know the kind of issues that they're engaging with, and in this instance, like using my skills in research to facilitate a process right? Right. to articulate this vision, uh, for example. Um, as an educator, I about in 2000, more or less, I worked with some colleagues to establish a, a, an education initiative, an education center, an intercultural education center, which sort of created a space for integrating Maya ways of knowing and being into the curriculum. So that's, I said, that's Sela? That's actually not Sela. That okay. was called the Tumulkin Center of Learning. So it's a school that kind of caters for high school uh, age children. Right. And so, you know, it incorporated the language, incorporated knowledge. It, you know, we brought elders to be part of the teaching crew. The education happened in the community. So we did some really crazy stuff, you know, to try to open the, the concept of education and, uh, and be, make it more community-based and more culturally uh, sensitive. And so that's one of the things. So that's that's one of the things I've done. I, 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 then I worked also uh, at a, kind of at the regional level, looking at intercultural education. How might we grow what we had started at this center and expand it to other schools? And that was kind of my focus on education initially. And then you know I'm called to think about land rights. So um, I've been part of a negotiating team sometimes for the my leaders alliance and the Alcalde Association there, and an advisor to that. And I said more and more now engage more as a resource. You know, I said mm-hmm. bringing my training in, in academia uh, to help the support the work that the Maya people are doing, bringing in the research uh, capacity to do mm-hmm. that. And uh, for me, I mean, it is amazing. I mean, yes, I'm doing a service. But the learning that, you know, that I get from that, to be able to participate in that and think through these things is, I'm really grateful for that kind of opportunity. It sounds absolutely amazing. Just this idea of actually using the voices within the community in order to teach the community is just, I love that. Yes, it is. It is, it is fantastic. You know? yeah. And I said, you learn so much, you know, that it makes you to think, makes you think differently. Yeah. Okay. One of the things that I'm engaged in is uh, with the Center for Engaged Learning Abroad mm-hmm. is, we essentially provide opportunities for students from North America, in particular from mm-hmm. U.S. and Canada, who come to Belize on field courses or sometimes doing internships or doing courses. And we al- actually create these opportunities for students to in- involve with what is happening right. with Maya communities and other communities as well. But because I work with Maya communities, it's kind of what I get excited about. <laughs> <laughs> uh, we have uh, a university, Carleton University, for example, mm-hmm. students from there who are coming this summer and they're working with communities to think about mapping. How, how do indigenous people think about mapping? Okay. okay. And then how my contemporary forms of mapping might be useful 
to document how they are present in the land. Mm-hmm. Okay, and this is important because what's going to happen after the court ruling is the implementation of that court ruling, which right. means that kind of identifying where those lands are, mm-hmm. okay, and uh, titling them. So being able to document how they use the land and where that land is is going to be very important. So it's engaging in that conversation with it. So it's an opportunity to do something with the community and also learn a great deal from the community. Yeah, Yeah, all at the same time. All at the same time. So one of the things that uh, we've also been doing with this podcast with our guests is we've been asking them, what advice would you give to students who are interested in pursuing either anthropology or education or this sort of outreach, indigenous um, education, all of these things? Well, you know, I, I... I think if you have passion, real interest in this, I think it's easy to find lots of opportunities. Think outside the box. You know, I think nowadays, and I know that uh, people go to study, go to their PhDs, and I know that the market for uh, PhDs in the university is not exactly there. And <laughs> my my career has been a little bit like that. I went back to Belize, and my dream was, okay, I was going to teach at the university, and I didn't have that opportunity. But eventually found that to be a little bit limiting in terms of what I wanted to do. So I think taking risks, like I, I just took out the risks and I said, you know what, I'm not going to be at the university. I don't know how I'm going to figure it out, but I really want to be engaged in these interesting, innovative yeah. things. And uh, it has led to some amazing experiences. Yeah. When I left the university, uh, the University of Belize, I had a tenure track um, job there. And this opportunity to establish this center, right, an innovative education mm-hmm. center, came up and I thought, yeah, why not? Okay, I'll do it. <laughs> and uh, I was fortunate to have uh, my wife who was supportive. And then, like, uh, maybe a few months into the project, I was there kind of in a remote community. And I thought, okay, I've done it to myself now. Right? <laughs> like, I left my job, which is secure, and I'm out here kind of in the middle of the jungle. What have I done? Um, and I found that, you know, a year after, I was being invited by, you know, UNICEF and UNESCO yeah. and the university to come and talk a little bit about the thinking that we have developed in engaging in this and talking about the work that we're doing. So I think taking risks, sometimes we might think about careers and we plan our our careers in a straight line. This is what I'm going to do. That's good. I mean, there's nothing wrong with that. But I think taking risks can take you into some amazing experiences. Um, I always, you know, tell my students, I hope to inspire. I hope to expand their, their worldview. And I hope to kind of inspire kind of social responsibility, you know, mm-hmm. to, to be connected, to give back, to engage with yeah. communities. But I, I feel like taking risks and, you know, being passionate about what one is doing, I think, is is, uh, is sound advice. Yeah, yeah I, I believe it. That's one of our goals with this podcast has been to provoke our listeners and to, to get them to think about things in a slightly different way. So that aligns very much with what we've been saying so far, I think. <laughs> perfect, perfect. So. Um, um, I'm glad to be part of it. Yes, well, thank you so much for coming, Dr. Panados. It was great to hear from you. Uh, and of course, thank you to all of our listeners. Remember, while you're waiting for our next episode to come out, subscribe to our podcast and like us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at A Story of Us OSU, or check out our website, anthropology.osu.edu. Don't forget to leave us a review of the show on iTunes, remembering that the more reviewers we have, the easier it is for people to find the show and fall in love with it just like you did. And as always, this podcast is produced in collaboration with the American Anthropological Association. We hope you join us next time as we continue to explore a story of us, our humanity, history, and department. Mm